Well, good morning, church. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. You look so good. I hope that when you greeted someone, you told them they, they looked good today. Yesterday, I was driving along with my son. I didn't plan on saying this. He has these pit vipers. I guess that's, that's the whole rage now with baseball players, right? And I put on my Ray-Bans. I looked over at him. I said, boy, you know what the difference between me and you is? I make these look good. And if you haven't seen Men in Black, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Guys, happy Easter. It's so good to have you here. You look good today. You look good today. You look handsome. You look beautiful. I see the life of God all over you, and I am so honored. I'm seriously honored to be the one to be able to preach the word to you today, to, um, to share the gospel, the good news, this glorious good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ with you today. Before we do that, I have a couple of quick announcements. Number one, next week is Baptism Sunday. And if you have never been baptized, yeah, let's go, man. Baptism Sunday is one of my absolute favorite Sundays. I am a wreck every single time I see someone come up out of that water and declare and proclaim the new life of the resurrection. It just, it just undoes me every single time. I'm reminded of the great lengths that God went through to save this sinner's life. And baptism is so important for the church. It's so important for the individual believer. It seals something in your life. It releases something of the grace of God into your life. It strengthens and solidifies your ability to live out the Christian life. Baptism is powerful, you guys. So if you've never been baptized, but you've said yes to Jesus, can I, as your pastor today, say, friends, be baptized. Come, get into the waters with me. Let's go down under it and let's proclaim the resurrection of power of God over your life. If you want to get baptized, you can go out these doors and register with Lauren at the Welcome Center, or you can go to our website right there, front and center on our front page. There's a link for you to be baptized. In two weeks, we have what's called our guest luncheon, which we call New Life Next. And if you want to know more about who we are as a people, some of our story, the things that we value, if you want to know the things that we believe, where we're going, if you just want to connect with us, heck, if you just want to eat a free lunch, come on out to New Life Next. You have to register for that as well, or else you won't have a free lunch, and you'll be angry and offended, and we got to work through all that, right? So sign up. Again, you can register on the front page of our website, midtown.newlifechurch.org, or you can go right out here right after service. Also, I just got word that we have so much food left over from our, from our mid-service brunch that if you guys want to go and grab you a little something right after service, in the gym, we've left up all the tables, we've left out food, and you guys can go grab you a little something if you came a little bit late and weren't able to grab some brunch. Amen? Okay, guys, let's jump into the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. And while you're turning there, for those of you who may have been in the faith for quite some time, I know I'm singling out a particular group of people, but I want to speak specifically right now to those of you who maybe this is your 20th or 30th or 40th Easter Sunday. I want to encourage you today. Let the power of the resurrection, let the now reality of who the Holy Spirit is in your life, let it hit you afresh and anew today. Let's not take this for granted. Let's not say, oh, I know this message. Pastor, I already know the spoiler to the story that you're going to share today. He lives. Yes, we all know he lives. 
but are you living in the fullness of that reality now, today? Are you experiencing that in your passion? Are you experiencing that in your faith? Are you experiencing that in your hope? Are you experiencing that in your marriages or in your family members? Friends, today, let's say, God, would you renew the wonder and the beauty and the power of the resurrection for every single one of us today? Could you, play, could you just say yes if you agree with that? Amen. All right, let's read the scripture, and then we're going to pray. And guys, we are going to hit the ground running so hard. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, this is a man by the name of Peter preaching. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was accredited by God to you by miracles, by wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. That was a really good moment for somebody to say something like yes or amen or woohoo or let's go. So I'm going to try it one more time. Verse 24 says, but God raised him from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible. Somebody say impossible. It was impossible. It was impossible. Literally, virtually, cosmically impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus, we serve the resurrected God today. And I am asking by the spirit of wisdom and revelation, you would make that brand new. Lord, make it as if we're being born again, again today. Lord, take us back. Take us back to that moment when we found you for the very first time. Take us back when we said yes to you, when we fell in love with you. Take us back to the place, God, where it was easy to cry when we would read the word or hear the word or sing a song because our hearts were so tender and we were so grateful at the wonder of the reality of who you are and what you've done in our lives. God, I'm asking that you would visit us today. Lord, we've come here. We didn't come here for a brunch. We didn't come here to get dressed up. We may have thought we were coming here for a friend, but Lord, we have come to meet with the living God. And I'm asking you today, I'm standing right now in the place of intercession, and I'm asking, oh God, by your spirit, meet with us. Reveal yourself to us. Let revelation of who we are, sons and daughters, come crashing in. Let every blinder and every veil, let every wound, let every trauma, let all rejection, God, let it just come falling off of us and let new life emerge. And I pray for it today in Jesus' name. Amen. The man who's preaching this sermon is a man by the name of Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was one of the chief of the disciples. There were 12, and kind of in the inner court of those disciples, there were three, Peter, James, and John. Peter is a man who's standing up 50 days after the resurrection. It's where we find our text here in Acts chapter 2. And what's so ironic and what's so interesting here is that this man who is boldly proclaiming, boldly preaching the gospel to a bunch of onlookers who are mocking the work of God in their midst. This very man was a man who actually denied any association with Jesus just hours before his death. I mean, I want you to think about this. This is the man who saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead in a back room where nobody else was given admittance. 
This is the man who went up on the mountain transfiguration and saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus and his face shining so brightly that he couldn't even recognize him. This is that same Peter. And yet, in the moment of trial, Peter cowers and three times vehemently, violently refuses any acknowledgement that he's even remotely associated with Jesus, the Son of God. Like, don't you ever wonder, like, in those 50 days, what exactly happened to take this coward who's riddled with shame and riddled with guilt, and just 50 days later, he is like, man, I'm throwing all conscience in the wind, and I'm standing up, and I am boldly declaring that not only am I associated with him, but my life has been radically revolutionized by the reality of who Jesus is, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the consequences. What happened? I think a couple of things happened, but number one, namely, I believe the resurrection happened. That by virtue of the resurrection, Jesus comes back and he restores Peter. He yanks shame and condemnation off of him. He restores him back to his place of beloved identity as a son. He comes directly to Peter and has an intimate conversation one-on-one with him. And he reminds Peter that there is nothing that Peter could ever do that would keep God from furiously chasing him down with his love. Peter There's nothing that you could do to keep me from loving you. This moment, this resurrection moment that Peter experienced, I'm calling this a turning point moment. And I believe that the resurrection is a turning point in every story. Like if you think about your own life, there are turning points in your life. Reference points, watershed moments. Moments where because of that one decision, everything in your life is different now. Like for me, I think about the day that I said yes to Jesus, not the day I started going to church, not the day my mom started making me write the scriptures out by hand, hour after hour, not the day I even said like a a sinner's prayer, but the day I came down, I was a junior in high school. It was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And I came down to a little wooden altar and I laid myself on that altar for two hours. And I said, God, whatever whatever you ask me, it's yes. Like that day, that was a watershed moment. It was a It was a turning point moment in my life. Like every single hour of every moment in my life afterwards can all be pointed back to that moment when I said yes to Jesus. I think about in the spring of 1995 when I decided to go to Oral Roberts University and I felt the spirit of God saying, son, this is the school that I want you to go to. And I said yes. And my life was, the trajectory of my life was radically altered by that one decision. I think about the decision to say yes to Mary Christy Morales on August the 4th of 2001, 22 years ago, and how my life, for the better, amazingly for the better, exponentially for the better, was shaped by that one decision. There's a couple of people that are in the family right now that are actually pregnant. Three of them that are in their second trimester, one in their third trimester. None of them have kids yet, and here's what I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is a watershed moment. Like everything is going to change, y'all. Date nights, gone. Yeah, hanging out with your homies and playing Call of Duty, it's over. Yeah, watershed moment, turning point moment. Everything is going to change when that little baby comes into your arms, right? How many moms and dads know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, that reference. For the better, guys. For the better. It's incredible. You're in for the ride of your life. Like in our life, we can wrap our minds around the notion that there are these 
reference points. Historically, think about the United States of America. I've been reading about the Revolutionary War. I've been reading about George Washington now for the past couple of years. And you think about who we we would be as a nation had we not won that those pivotal battles, right? Those pivotal. There's no reason why we should have won this ragtag army, outnumbered, outgunned, and yet somehow, right? About to roll into some Hamilton right here. Like somehow we won that war. Think about the fact that, you know, we defeated Hitler's Germany. Like we could all be speaking German right now, right? A watershed moment in our nation. Do you realize that in your pocket, for those of you guys who hold a a smartphone, do you realize there are actually scientific studies now called the smartphone revolution? And that what you hold in your hand or what's in your pocket right now is actually more powerful than all of the mainframe computers that were used in 1969 to put the first two men on the moon. Did you know that? I had to look that up and verify that. It's true. Like the computing power that you hold in the palm of your hand is more powerful than the computers that were utilized to put the first two human beings on the moon. Smartphone revolution. Everything changed culturally, scientifically, technologically. The world as we know it changed because of that little thing, because of that technological advancement called the smartphone. So why is it beyond our ability to acknowledge or even to admit that with all of these reference points, with all of these tectonic shifts, with all of these turning points that have shaped our lives where everything could point back to that one moment, why is it difficult for us to acknowledge that the greatest turning point that has ever been experienced in human history is when God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is the turning point of every story. And you know, there's, it's, it's so far-reaching. There have been volumes and volumes and volumes of theological books written on the power of the resurrection and what it means for us and why it's important. But I have one single message for you today. I hope it's not too elementary. I hope it's not too simple. But I have come to the conviction that what I'm about to preach to you today is one of the most important things that you come to a revelation of in your life. And that is this. Friends, the resurrection means that your sins are forgiven. The resurrection means that your sins are forgiven. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is preaching and he says he's refuting these ideas that are floating around in the culture of the day that are saying that there is no such thing. It's impossible for a human body to come back from the dead. And here's what Paul says with his kind of theological mind at work. He just breaks this down so simply. And he says, listen, listen, if the dead are not raised, verse 16, then Christ hasn't been raised. That's simple logic, right? Because Christ was a human being. And if we're going to build the future of our lives on this idea, on this notion that it's impossible for a a living body that has been dead and has lived in the grave, it's impossible for that body to come back to life. Well, if you're going to carry that all the way to the end, then you have to admit that not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised then everything that we're doing, guys, let's just close the doors and let's just go live like, let's go all out. You know what I mean by that, by living all out? I mean, like, let's just throw all the restraint off and let's just go for it. Because our faith is futile. It's futile. It's meaningless. It's worthless. 
It's pointless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, we're still living in our sins. Both now, the guilt, the shame, the weight of the condemnation, we're living in our sins now, and we will live under the condemnation of our sins for all of eternity if, in fact, Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. The book of Luke, chapter 23, if you would turn there with me in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we find Jesus suspended on a cross. He's hanging there, condemned to die. And we have to remember that just hours prior to Jesus being fixated here upon this cross, he's betrayed by one of his staff members. He's turned in. He's ratted out. All of his closest friends that he has spent every intimate waking moment with for the past three years of his life, they bail. They're out. They turn their back on him. They disassociate themselves with him. The religious power brokers of the day, I, I like to call them the religious cartel of the day, they broker an agreement for Jesus to be executed. Jesus is beaten, he's exhausted, he's hungry. He's had very little sleep. And Roman soldiers are basically kind of working out a laboratory of the latest techniques and methods of human torture. And they're doing it on Jesus's body. And here in this moment of excruciating exhaustion, pain, injustice, what, is, what comes out of Jesus's mouth? Jesus says this in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, very first words that he utters. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. If they really knew what they were doing, if they were really in their right mind, if they really had spiritual perspective, if they really had revelation of who I am and who you are and what they're doing right now, there's no way that they would do this. God, have mercy on them. This is what Jesus breathes out. It's not a word of vengeance. It's not a word of power. It's not a word of anger. It's not a word of condemnation. It's not a word of self-pity. It's not a word of sorrow. It's, he's not complaining. Like when you squeeze somebody, like when you put the pressure on in their life, when all hell is coming out against someone's life, what comes out of a person? Well, whatever's inside of them. You ever found yourself doing something and then just something kind of flew out of your mouth and you're like, oh, where'd that come from? Well, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. And out of the abundance of the heart of God, here's what he says. Father, forgive them. I believe he did this because your forgiveness matters to Jesus. I want to say that again, your forgiveness, it matters to Jesus. The consequences of living a life outside of the forgiveness of God, God cares about that. I want to propose to you today, friends, that your right standing with God is one of the deepest needs of your life. That everything in your life, you thought life was just about crushing it and you thought life was just about dominating the game and you thought life was just about being better, the better version of yourself. And what I want to propose to you today very simply is this, that the greatest, most fundamental need of your life and my life is that we recognize and we realize that there is no way that we were not in right standing with God. That our relationship with God was broken. It was fractured. There was no putting it back together. And God moved heaven and earth to send his son 
for one solitary purpose, and that was to reconcile lost and broken and dying humanity back into intimate fellowship with him. That's why, that's why God chased us down in the person of Jesus. Because your right standing with God is one of the greatest, deepest needs of your life. We find this in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus encounters a man who's paralyzed. Read with me beginning in verse 1. When the gospel tells us a few days later, when Jesus entered again Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. Not even outside the door. Sounds like our service two weeks ago. And he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof right above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat that the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, listen to this. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. At which point, if I'm one of the guys who's just carried this 200-pound man halfway across the city, I'm thinking, hold up, Jack. I just didn't dig a hole in this roof and lower this guy down here and exert all this energy so that you could tell him that his sins are forgiven. Clearly, he needs to be healed. Everybody stretch forth your hands to Jesus. His sight, obviously, is being affected right now. Jesus, he needs to be healed. And Jesus goes, yes. And in that moment, he reveals to us this astonishing reality about God. And that very simply is that God always knows what the real issue is. God always knows what the real issue is. See, sometimes the most obvious need is not the real need. Sometimes the thing that you think, this is, this is, this is what I need. I just, I just need to get out of that relationship. Sometimes, you know, the most obvious need is, oh, I just need to, I just need to quit that job. I, I, need, I need to move. I need a change of scenery. I need a change of pace. Growing up here in Colorado Springs, transient community, things ain't ever going to change. I don't like how big it's getting. Whatever the issue is, I'm just here to tell you today, sometimes the most obvious need is not the real need. The obvious need is not the real need. Sometimes the obvious need is not the real need, and God knows what the real need is of your life is. I want you to imagine with me, if you would, is it possible that while everything in this man's life visibly, physically was saying, I need to walk again, Jesus is looking at the deeper reality and he's looking at the core of the issue. See, God doesn't deal with symptoms. Like if you got yourself in the debt and you perpetually get yourself in the debt and you don't know how to handle finances, we think what we just need is more money. That's a symptom. You think you just have an anger issue. That's a symptom. You think it's everybody else's fault, that everybody else has a problem with who you are. That's a symptom. Jesus is able to look right into the deepest needs of this man, and what he realizes is that there's something that this man is carrying where he doesn't have a revelation that God has forgiven him. This man is carrying around self-hatred and self-rejection and self-condemnation. And what is happening on the core of his being, church, listen to this. Like what is happening in the inner conversation. Like when, when, when the wife and the kids go down to sleep, when the husband and the kids go down to sleep, when you go into your bedroom as a single all by yourself, 
and, and, and all the Netflix binging and all the alcohol and all the other vices, they're not, they're not shutting down that internal conversation. Here's what's happening. What's happening on the inside is manifesting itself on the outside. This man is not living with the revelation that God has forgiven him. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer rejected. Son, don't hate yourself. Baby girl, don't hate yourself. Don't cut yourself. Don't condemn yourself. You're not trash. You're not worthless. You need to understand who I say that you are. You need a revelation. And we need to understand today that the revelation that God has absolved every trespass in our lives works itself out in every part of our life. Depression, anxiety, domestic abuse, domestic violence, anger, broken relationships, falling into the pit of despair. How many of you guys have ever been in a place, don't raise your hand, but you've been in a place, I've been in a place where you just feel like God, no matter what it is that I do, no matter how much religious energy I keep throwing at this thing, why is it that I just don't sense or feel or experience or understand the depths of who I am? You need to recognize and realize that there is nothing that you have ever done. There is no amount of sin that you have ever stacked up that is beyond God's ability to absolutely deal with by the power of his son's death and resurrection. God knows how to get to the very real issue in our lives. And my theory very simply is this. Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven because Jesus knows that his physical paralysis is the result of his need for forgiveness. Let's keep reading Mark chapter two, verse six. So some teachers of the law were sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming because who can forgive sins but God alone? And in the middle of their critique, in the middle of their criticism, they actually have a sliver of truth. It's not that, there, it's not that there's not truth in certain aspects of religion. It's just that it's devoid of the love and the grace and the compassion that flow from the heart of God. Therefore, that truth doesn't always heal. But these Pharisees and these teachers of the law are sitting back and going, who does this guy think he is? Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? And that's where they got it right. Friends, whatever it is that you're carrying today or whatever it is that you've been carrying for the past season of your life, I'm hoping today that God shines his light on the things that are operating under the surface. Those hidden invisible belief systems that you don't even realize anymore that you've adopted, that you've aligned yourself with. I'm hoping today that God shines the light of his spirit and that he actually allows you to hear in the inner ear of your spirit things that were spoken over you, things that you spoke over yourself or things that you heard literally the voice of the enemy. I'm hoping that God reveals those to you so you can put them right in front of the light and say, that's a lie. So when the teachers of the law say only God can forgive sin, like, here's the harsh reality, you guys. There is nothing that we can do to earn or merit or deserve or work for forgiveness from God. There's nothing. It's impossible. It's impossible. Some of us right now, some of us, I've lived this. I've experienced this. I've experienced the frustration of saying, God, I'm doing more than I've ever done before. I'm singing louder. I'm clapping harder. I'm jumping higher. I'm giving more money. I'm reading more. I'm memorizing more. God, what do I have to do? Like deep inside of me, 
We have to come to the revelation that there's nothing that you can do. It's impossible. It's impossible to earn your forgiveness with God. Let's keep reading here as the story goes on in Mark chapter 2, verse 8. So immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. And he said to them, guys, why are you thinking these things? I love this. Look at, look at the language here. Which is easier? Forgive his sins or heal his body? Now I'm sneaky because I'm like, listen, I think it's easier to forgive his sins because y'all don't really know whether or not that worked. Man, you throw a paralyzed man in front of me and I'm like, oh, this is simple. I'm just going to raise him. I'm just going to raise him up. Like, if it doesn't happen, I'm a fraud. But I say, yo, man, your sins are forgiven. Y'all don't really know if his sins are forgiven. I'm thinking Jesus. But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this. The most difficult thing that God could ever do for you. Guys, don't miss this. The most difficult thing, the most complex intricate, challenging thing that God could ever do for you, it's not heal your body. It's not restore your broken relationships. It's not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out provision on you. Those are easy. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, which is easier? Heal him or forgive him? And what he's implying is this. It is more difficult for the God of the universe to forgive humanity's sin against him than it is to do anything else. Everything else that happens after God forgives us, it's just him showing off. It's cherries on the top. You know why that is? Because, friends, the most difficult thing that God will ever do for you is send his son Jesus to be the substitutionary propitiary, sinful sacrifice for you to restore you back into the righteousness that God dreamed of when he created humanity. That's the miracle. That you're in right standing with God and that nothing that you ever do is so great that you cannot be restored back to that place of righteousness with God. Let's keep reading right here. The rest of the story goes like this. In Mark chapter 2, verse 10, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Like, I want you to know that. This is what Jesus is saying. Guys, I want every single one of you to know that one of the reasons why I came is to forgive your sin. The consequence of your sin, the weight of your sin the insidious, invisible reality of standing condemned, I've come to deal with that. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he tells the man, oh yeah, by the way, stand up and walk. And the man picks up his mat and he goes home. I thoroughly believe that this man's physical healing was the byproduct of God touching the deepest need of his life. God doesn't just heal his condition. He heals his core identity. So what does this mean? Oh, it's great, Pastor Jade. You say that the resurrection secures our forgiveness. You're telling me today that the resurrection matters because it means that we're forgiven. What exactly does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 16 and we're going to bring this plane down. And we're going to land on us saying yes. 
We're going to land on us boldly and audaciously receiving this radical gift called forgiveness of sins today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, he says, So from now on, we regard no one, say no one, no one from a worldly point of view. It means that when we're in Christ, when we're new creation people, it means that we have the ability to see that God is at work in those that are around us, that people are being made new, that because of the resurrection, God is at work in the earth and he's at work in our lives and he's at work in other brothers and sisters and we're no longer able to call them after their worldly identity. That God calls us into seeing people by their heavenly new creation identity. And that's why he says in verse 17, he says, therefore, if any person be in Christ... What are they? They're a new creature. They're a new creation. Old things are passing away. Old habits, old mindsets, old paradigms, old sin patterns. Those things are being washed away. And behold, as we continue living in God, working with God, practicing spiritual disciplines with God, rooting ourselves in the community and the people of God, you know what's happening? All things are becoming new. We're becoming more and more and more like Christ and that will happen throughout all of eternity until we are perfected as 1 John 3 says. When we see him, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. But then in verse 18, he says, all of this, everything that we're talking about, new creation reality, this is from God. You can't make yourself new. You can't make yourself innocent. You can't make yourself free. You can't absolve yourself from the weight. We've tried. And this is where Paul says, all of this is from God. Who did what? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But this is the verse I want you to latch on to. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this right here. This, the, the last phrase of verse 19. Where it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So God in Christ hanging on the cross and saying, guys, come and be made right with me. Come and be made right with me. Stop running. Stop wandering. Stop second guessing. Stop wondering. Come and be brought back into the intimate fellowship that I have dreamed of with you from day one. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And here it is right here. Not counting people's sins against them. Not counting people's sins against them. Not counting people's sins against them. God's not taking score. God's not stacking up the debt. God's not putting it on your tab. Oh, there he is again. Yep, he watched that late in the middle of the night. Let's just put that on the tab right there. We're going to square this up one of these days. Judgment seat is going to be on. It's not what he's doing. Like, you have to understand listen, forgiveness is about freedom. This is why God created us. God didn't create us for bondage and law and legality and shackles and chains and shame and to hold something over us and to always have the leverage. God created us for freedom. God created us for us to experience the life and the joy and the wonder and the excitement and the creativity that comes only from being restored into right relationship with God, which is only possible through the forgiveness that was made available through the death and the resurrection of God's son. God is not counting your sins against you. Oh, but you don't know what I did. It doesn't matter what you did. Well, you don't matter how long I've struggled with this. It doesn't matter how long you've struggled with this. 
You need to understand, church, today, I believe that God has, he's, he's used friends and he's used neighbors and he's used coworkers. And I believe he's used family members. I believe he's even used people that you don't even like to get you right here today to hear this. God's not mad at you. I need you to hear this today. We live in a world where the world has somehow adopted the notion it's because we've not done a great job as Christians. We've not done a great job as a church. We put the emphasis on the wrong thing, but I'm here to announce to you today, this is not sloppy grace. This is truth. God is not mad at you. He's not mad at you. God loves you. And God has settled the debt of sin once and forever. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else you can do. Friends, you know what some of us are doing? It's like this. It's, it's like, uh, you know, when I went to ORU several, okay, almost 30 years ago, but listen, <laughs> several's relative. When I went to ORU and I took out loans, I mean like hefty loans. Like if, if they write me and they say, Mr. J. Duncan, we want you to know that Sally's no longer angry at you. And you no longer have to pay those thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Do you think I'm going to keep writing Sally my checks? No. No. Right? If SunTrust Mortgage hits me up and says, hey, man, someone has decided it's going to be, it's, it's going to, we're going to remain undisclosed who has done this, but someone has decided to pay off the rest of your house mortgage. I'm not writing SunTrust Mortgage my checks anymore. And you know what some of us are doing? We're walking around. And we're still writing checks. We're still trying to write checks. Some of us, like you're doing your best. God bless you. God love you. But some of you are coming into this room, and for you, it's a form of writing a check. Oh, I checked it off. God, have mercy on me. God, for, for, forgive me. God, please be kind to me. God, please. Listen, it's done. It's done. The weight of your sin, it's been paid for. You know what we need to do? All you have to do is say thank you. I receive. I'd like to invite the worship team. I'd like to invite our altar ministers to come up here. And we're going to come to the table right now. And we're going to just simply say yes. God, I receive your forgiveness. God, I receive your kindness. God, I receive your mercy. God, I receive your ability to make me a new person. God, I receive your ability to cancel all of those invisible heavy debts off of my life. Friends, I want you to walk out of here lighter today. I want you to walk out of here with your head hung high, and I want you to believe today that the revelation that you are a beloved son and daughter who has been, who has been thoroughly exonerated from every action against God, I want that to fall off. I want that to just settle in, and I want you to walk out of here and let that touch every area of your life. Some of us are angry with other people because we have not received the revelation that we're forgiven. Some of us are on edge. Some of us are depressed. Some of us are anxious. You know why that is? Because the revelation of our forgiveness has not settled down into the core of our reality. In fact, if you would just hear under this holy moment as Seth plays, would you just bow your head and would you close your eyes with me? And I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, I am going to ask right now that the Holy Spirit would make this revelation real to you. Spirit of the living God, would you 
Would you turn over every stone of shame and religious works and religious performance? Would you show us ways in which we're not partnering with the revelation and the reality of our freedom? Show us, God. Show us ways in which we're still inadvertently trying to earn your favor. Show us the many ways, oh God, that we're carrying around self-rejection and self-hatred and self-condemnation because we cannot break free from our sin. Show us the places where we're afraid to trust in this infinite love and in this infinite grace. Lord, show us where we're more comfortable with our religious performance than we are with trusting you. The scandal of grace. Holy Spirit, reveal deep into our core identity. You're free. You're forgiven. The Father loves you. I'm not holding this against you. I'm not keeping score. I'm not tallying things up. I put my son on a tree. I let him hang there half naked with the sins of the world placed on his shoulders so that you and I could be reconciled, so that you and I could experience intimacy, so that you could walk in freedom. And now, friends, all across this room, and those of you guys who are joining us online, would you just hold your hands out like this? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 1.12 says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he has given the right to become sons and daughters of the living God. Would you pray this with me today? Say, Father, I receive your forgiveness in Jesus. Holy Spirit, make me free in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, would you stand with me this morning as we come? as we honor and celebrate and worship God at his table. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat there knowing full well that one of his closest friends was going to turn his back on him. And he ratified the deal right there. Jesus said, this is my body, it's broken for you. This cup of wine is my blood and it's shed for you. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just stretch forth your hands right now. We believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in everything that happens in this service. That he is intimately involved in our singing and our giving and our greeting and the preaching of the gospel. And we believe that we're not just eating a little cracker, that somehow God is breathing on this moment. That he's at work in this moment. And so we're gonna pray right now, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, take cracker make it the body of Christ, take juice, make it the blood of, Je the blood of Jesus for us today. Holy Spirit, take the, the concrete, physical, tangible things of this earth and make them grace for us. I pray today that when you come at this table, you experience God. You experience his love. You experience his mercy. Pray today that shackles fall off of you, 
that freedom come to the very core identity of your being. I want to invite you to come to the table. You can exit on the left. Hear the pronouncement over you. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood shed for you. And we will all take it together as a family in our seats. You may come to the table now.